Hi everyone, my name is Nathan Green and this is Sample Space, the podcast from the Department of Statistical Science here at UCL. I'm very pleased to be speaking with Mine Doju about uh, something a little bit different today. So we're going to be talking about teaching and education in the context of statistics and uh, her experiences and some things that I know absolutely nothing about, so I'm really looking forward to it. So hi, Mine. Before we crack on with that, would you like to give an introduction, a bit of your own background, please? So I just joined the department in July, actually. I'm pretty new in the department and in the UK. I'm Odia from California. I was an assistant professor of teaching in the Department of Statistics at the University of California, Irvine. I was also the vice chair of undergraduate studies there. Okay, so how long have you been in the department? Uh, since uh, so since July, so we're recording this at the end of September. Uh-huh. So it's actually today is my second month anniversary in London. Okay, well, and happy anniversary. So how's it going? Uh, so far, so good, I must say. Uh, I really like the teaching community in the department. Uh, so this is very unusual for me because back in California, I was the only professor focused on teaching. And here we have a very big group of teaching lectures and professors. So this is something very new and very exciting for me. So what, what have you been working on before you came to UCL? So I think most recently, uh, my biggest time was spent on Bayesian education. So I was teaching a Bayesian course for undergraduates in the United States. Actually, a Bayesian course for undergraduates is not quite common, uh, as common in the US. I know uh, we are in a very Bayesian department. <laughs> Actually, like I, we worked recently on an education research looking at universities in the US and how many of them offer Bayesian courses and so on. So it's not as common as one would think. So I was teaching a Bayesian course. And uh, from that course, we started writing a textbook with my collaborators at different institutions, Alicia Johnson and Miles Ott. So it's the Bayes Rules book. So a good portion of my time was spent uh, on writing that book and preparing teaching materials for a Bayesian course for undergraduate audience. How how do they do that now? Because I remember there was a conflict between whether you should bring in the Bayesian stuff at the beginning and sort of mix it with the frequentist or whether how it was taught to me like 20 odd years ago. It's the frequentist stuff. And then if you're interested later on, you might do some Bayesian stuff. So uh, what's like your take on that? I I teach the same way. Like I used to teach senior fourth year students in the United States and they used to get their frequentist training and some Bayesian concepts would show up in their training as well but like their first training is really like full training in Bayesian statistics would be in their last year of their degree which is the fourth year and to be honest even I know that there's a big debate should we teach Bayesian or not like depends on who you ask Uh, but one thing I've noticed through teaching Bayesian statistics is actually it helps students understand frequentist statistics as well so for instance, at the beginning of my course, like I and our textbooks also, like we covered the foundations and so on and simulation approximating the posterior. But once we get using the posterior and making inferences like hypothesis testing and so on, uh, I know very well, like in every time I teach hypothesis testing from a Bayesian perspective, students actually start thinking about hypothesis testing from frequentist perspective as well. Like, 
we teach p-values over and over and p-values are very hard to internalize what they mean what they represent but once they actually see hypothesis testing from a Bayesian perspective and think about given data concept versus given null hypothesis true that's when they actually understand what they have been doing in their frequentist classes all along it makes a little bit much more sense once they see the Bayesian perspective because they have something to compare it with that's really interesting. So it doesn't kind of confuse them to have these two different ways of thinking about it. I don't think so. And what's kind of, is there a preference? Because uh, like you said, our department is very Bayesian, so we're all very biased, <laughs> but it just seems a lot more of a natural uh, way to do things, especially in terms of the interpretations of things, you know, like credible intervals and what have you. So what do you find from how the students What's the feedback from the students? <laughs> so uh, when I teach the course, or, and in general, like I never put pressure on students. Like I'm not trying to raise next generation Bayesians, but oh. I do want students to be literate in Bayesian statistics, and they should be able to choose frequentist or Bayesian methods depending on their research questions and where they end up in life. So the goal is not necessarily to make them Bayesians, but I must confess that they do enjoy course a lot, a lot. And they do end up saying things like, oh, frequentist statistics was lying to us all this time with hypothesis <laughs> testing. So I did get comments like that and they do have Bayesian tendencies towards the end. Uh, but I also have students, for instance, who like they take 10 weeks of course and they still oppose the idea of building a prior model. So I have all sorts of ideas and they're all welcome in the classroom, to be honest, because they all exist in the statistics community as well. Yeah, I think that's fair, actually. Whichever side of the argument you're on, you're always going to meet both the approaches. Uh, that's definitely true. And I've noticed that sort of more of a pragmatism uh, more recently. You know, it's not like everything's Bayesian, everything's frequentist people just don't care anymore in the same way people aren't getting angry at conferences like they used to <laughs> yeah that is true and also like from an education perspective i would rather my have my students be informed and pick up fights if they're going to pick up fights than not know about the topic and pick up fights so we want yeah, to, that's right <laughs> we want them to be educated about the topic yeah i like that okay so that's um like what you're teaching how are you teaching it do you sort of teach the intuition behind the methods and then you sort of introduce the sort of the the equations and it's sort of do you do it that way or do you sort of just show them the equations up front and then pull it apart no we actually leave math until the end so it, the teaching in the course is very much computer assisted especially visualizations visualizations really help students to uh, what's happening to posterior basically how is prior influencing the posterior how is likelihood is, is influencing the posterior like if you think about driving let's say the beta binomial model uh, when they look at even the beta pdf uh, posterior uh, P, like beta pdf we actually like students just look at it as greek letters right mm. Whereas if you show a couple of better PDFs, they can actually see how the parameters are influencing the distribution. So visualizations really help them internalize that. And also visualizations help them try different scenarios. Like what, if, what happens when the 
prior stats, when what happens if it's a informative prior, highly informative prior, or what happens when we have more data. So the MLE might be similar, but uh, if the data is more, if you collect more data, what happens to the posterior? So they actually see the influence of more evidence collection and how that influences our conclusions. So I really, uh, for that reason, actually, we support the book with an R package that has uh, different sets of functions, but a, co a core set of functions is actually making these visualizations easy. Yeah, that's a good idea. It's the same material in the book, Bayes rule book, as it is in the, in that you do in the lectures, is it? And then that's also all linked with the package. That is correct. Because we, uh, my co-authors and same, they were also teaching similar courses in their institutions. So we wrote the books based on our course notes and reiterated, uh, changed things in our courses, in the book and so on. So it was a continuous project uh, intertwined the book and the courses. Yeah, nice. And it's an online book, right? So you can, it's like a live document. That is absolutely true. It's at baysrulesbook.com. And that was actually when we first started writing the book before even reaching out to publishers for proposals. That was our first uh, criteria. We will make this book accessible online. And thankfully, our publisher, CRC, was fine with that and we make it open accessible. Great. Okay. Well, I think I need to read it. <laughs> um okay so can we um can you explain to me what accessibility is in education please absolutely so we just talked about having an open access book for instance so the book is actually read by hundreds of users every day maybe i'm not sure how much is read but at least the website is visited uh, by hundreds of users every day sometimes thousands of users depending on some social media posts, somebody posts. And if you think about it, these users come from different parts of the world. And I'm not sure if he just had a physical book, this would have made it to everywhere in the world, so, to be honest. So part of accessibility is actually lowering down costs, which is a big barrier in education because textbooks cost a lot. So by making open access resources, uh, not just books, but other uh, teaching materials as well, like our slides, our hand notes, our worksheets. These can also be open access as well. So I try to do as much as possible on that end uh, from my own courses. But uh, as we were writing base books, base rules book, we also learned a little bit about accessibility from different perspective, uh, which is visual access, like for colorblind people making sure that the plots are accessible uh, because we use different color for prior likelihood and posterior and they should be visible to someone with colorblindness. And also something exciting happened during this book. We were learning about uh, how to make it accessible for people with visual impairments or blind people. We wanted to provide descriptions of figures so that uh, people who use screen readers can actually read the plots and make sense of the plots. And we wrote the book using the R package book down, but the book down actually did not support, these are called alternate texts for figures. Book down back then, R markdown or knit R packages did not support alternate text back then. And we requested it from the team who develops R markdown and they actually started using this, developing this. So. Now our markdown actually has alternate text available 
and the new generation, our Markdown, which is Quarto, also supports alternate text. So we were able to write our book with alternate text for figures, uh, which was exciting for us. Yeah, that sounds great. How does that practically work? Do, do you write a description and then do you record a, an audio which is attached to the, the book? Or how does that work? Good question. So alternate text is actually available in many software. This is not something only statisticians should consider. Like even if you do PowerPoint presentations, even if you post on Twitter, but the way it works is like on websites. Uh, so you're maybe thinking about a print book, but I'm actually, I should clarify, I'm talking about the online book. Somebody who reads a screen reader, the screen reader can actually read every text on there. But when it comes to a plot, if there is no alternate text attached to a plot, the screen reader would just read it as plot or plot.jpg mm. or something. So we have to, on the back end, provide some description for the plot. And uh, so it's not an audio file. It's actually a written part of the document. So in for those who use R Markdown, it's actually a fig.alt chunk option, but it's actually an HTML. In HTML, there's an image alternate text, and this is supported in many, many platforms. I suppose I could use that in journal papers, could use that, and, you know, like it's applicable to everything. So you would think that is that would be the case, Nathan. Mm. Uh, once I wrote a manuscript, in fact, part of that, actually, it's not. it wasn't a manuscript. It was more like a professional organization's magazine piece. And I was talking about alternate text in my writing. And unfortunately, they published their magazine in PDF. And PDF is one of the least accessible formats, whereas HTML is much more accessible. And I insisted that they publish it in HTML. And this publication has been around at least 50 years. And I think, I'm afraid, mine was the first HTML publication that they did. Uh, and that was only because I insisted that they put alternate text. Actually, getting journals to publish your alternate text is a very deep battle uh, right, okay. to fight. Uh, so I hope that professional organizations and journals like uh, take this I think one good organization that does this well is or better should I say not best but ACM American Computing Machinery Group does have a good accessibility group that do have guidelines for journals and conferences to take on accessibility so when I if I get a paper published I should always try I should always mention that that we should sort of collectively put pressure on and what happens to equations so for equations usually uh, using math jacks usually helps with screen readers but i think uh, so i'm not 100 percent sure about this maybe i should be quoted but it is very difficult because it's it's audio after all and getting subscripts superscripts all where it should be is a hard task to get in audio that definitely becomes challenging yes yeah okay so that's a bit more of a work in progress yeah okay so so you got you had a win with the with the with uh package down or book down sorry so if i <laughs> if anyone wants to do it in book down now they can they can and our markdown supported packages or quarto like book down blog down our markdown quarto all of these make it possible to write alternate text okay cool i'm going to try that as well <laughs> So this also made me consider uh, 
like why it took me many years uh, coming out of PhD to figure all these things out, even mm. though I always have visual components in my work. And uh, so I started questioning things like our markdown, like why did it take so many years to support this? And I think one of the reasons is because in statistics programs, we don't actually learn about accessibility. Accessibility, we can think about like accessibility is relevant to any field really, but also there's accessibility specifically for statistics and data science, like how do we uh, verbalize plots, for instance, and so on. So uh, this made me question, and there's a very good group of industry and education partners called Teach Access. So they try to close this gap. So they try to help instructors teach accessibility to their students. They give grants for this. And I was lucky enough to get a grant from them. And I started actually teaching my own students accessibility as part of their data science courses. Of course, I have a lot to do on this end. I cannot say that I it's in great shape right now, but I think we have to consider our curricular design because if we don't teach it, we're not gonna know. Maybe by chance we might hear it on a podcast or something. Exactly, I mean, I've never heard of it. Yeah. you know i'm old so is there like a quite a template but is there like a format that you can use to describe a certain type of plot for example you know is there a certain language and lexicon that you'd use for that has it been standardized good question so there are two resources i can recommend one is so there is an automatic way to do this one of them is braille r package in r and this would actually is aimed for doing, writing automated figure out text and people with visual impairments also use this. But the thing is, it only uh, supports a few plots like histograms, bar plots and so on. But if you think about scatter plots, uh, that they're very hard to describe because there is a, some trend that we are trying to capture. Same with trace plots in Bayesian statistics, for instance. Tra After all, these are automated. What it's trying to do is like, it's trying to read the height of the bar. It's trying to read what's on the x-axis, y-axis, and so on. But trace plots, you're not going to read every point on a trace plot, right, automatically. So they become harder to manage. But there are people working in this area. And there are also like people from computer science part who are trying to build software who can automate this process and so on. But in terms of writing from like manual perspective, there are some guidelines too. Uh, one of them is uh, by Amy Sizzle. If you actually write, uh, type to Google, I bet it will show up like writing alternate text for data plots. She, hers would be the first one to pop up. It's a medium post. And she does talk about like what to include. Some of these, like the most important part is using units x-axis y-axis what's the plot like it's a histogram scatter plot but most importantly what is it telling what the message in that plot is and usually a rule of thumb for accessibility if you include visualization if you can include your data in raw format somewhere either in a github report something is better because a visually impaired user can interact with your data if they want to find out more about it and the, like the original data source a very good website for this also, uh, even though I'm a very a hard, uh, all, like I always use R for my work and I, my teaching, but SAS is actually pretty good with accessibility and their accessibility website has very good examples on interacting with data and plots. 
Great. Okay. Well, I'll make sure to include those in the in the text that goes along with this podcast, so people Sounds can check all that out. Including the raw data is one way of um, helping reproducibility, right? So uh, the last point I have here is reproducible teaching. So uh, yeah, what do you mean by that? That's the other thing that sounds sort of modern and I've been left behind <laughs> with. So in statistics education, we, if I'm think about software, we tend to focus on two things. One is software, we statistical software we use for teaching statistics and the other one is for doing statistics. When we say teaching, what I mean is what the students are learning as students. So this used to be like Minitab, let's say, and now it's maybe we're teaching R. But at the same time, we wrote a preference and we're arguing that the third, there's a third dimension and that's what the instructor uses themselves for teaching. So for instance, I could be teaching Minitab, let's say, I wouldn't be, but I could be using R Markdown to prepare my slides. So there's a third dimension that gets into the picture. And we always, I think, argue for reproducible research uh, about doing research. So we want to actually, we try to take this from teaching perspective. And this is very important because many students, uh, we we try to teach them reproducibility, but they don't necessarily, not every student gets to interact with us from a research perspective. I know that here they do have research projects, but at least in the United States, it's not as common for every student to do a research project. So reproducible teaching in the classroom actually gives students to see their professor or lecturer actually using these tools. So for instance, when I teach, I use Git, GitHub for my course pages. I use uh, R Markdown and I teach R Markdown. So a student who actually sees me using R Markdown and they have access to my slides, it's open source, open access. So they can, if they see something that I have done in my slides that I'm not necessarily teaching them how to do, they actually go to source code and learn it if they want to. and so basically, I'm teaching them the tool, but I'm also using the tool to teach them. And everything we talk about reproducible research, like having version control, having access to data, having literate programming in research is holds true for teaching as well. I think that's excellent. I mean, everyone that I work with, I right at the start, I always say, let's work through GitHub. And more often than not, they don't have an account and they've never used it before. So if you're teaching students to be comfortable with using those, that's only a good thing. Uh, What about like GitHub pages and things? Do Do you use those features? Yes, I do use it myself because my course websites are hosted on GitHub pages. Some of them actually have their own domain names and so on. But for classroom use, unfortunately, for private repos it's not because for my courses I have a github organization for each course and private repos are not not possible and student work has to be private kept private so that's I had hard time getting working around that in the last time the last time I was teaching this course I remember seeing uh, you know Jenny Bryan yeah uh, our studio I remember seeing some of her stuff which she uses for uh, teaching R. And I was, I was really impressed by how it was like integrating those like peer project marking and things and assigning uh, into groups. And it was all done via GitHub. 
Actually, we also have uh, our package that I co-developed with uh, two PhD students back in UC Irvine. And basically, because also like grading, like getting these out exactly. of GitHub and also like opening each, pro uh, we do a lot of project work, opening these one by one. Exactly. So we have this package, grade tools that we can actually open a student's project, uh, grade them there. We create the rubric, create each project, automatically save that and move on to the next project. So we do have like, even though it seems overwhelming to teach Git, GitHub, there are many resources out there that actually makes the process much easier. I've got quite a long list of things to do after this call. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good sign, I think. Okay, so that's really all I wanted to talk to you about today. And like I said, it's been absolutely fascinating. And I'll probably want to talk to you uh, some more in the future, <laughs> if that's okay. I would love to. Yeah, fantastic. So everyone, go and uh, read uh, the Bayes rule book, and uh, <laughs> not necessarily to be a, stat a Bayesian statistician. I'd like to finish by uh, thanking you for talking to us today, and hopefully I will see you soon around the department. Thank you for having me. UCR Minds brings together the knowledge, insights and ideas of our community through a wide range of events and activities that are open to everyone.